Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to the Finding Peaks Recovery Show. I have two great friends here, Angela Lopez, um, who's a personal friend of mine and also a, a professional uh, that works with Peaks Recovery, and then my man, Mr. Jay Freeze. Happy to be here today, happy to have this group together. Really excited about um, the topic of conversation today, which is we're just going to open it up with big hearts, big smiles, and kick it over to my man Jay. But what I'm going to say really quickly is these two have had a relationship, um, a clinical relationship, uh, before they had a personal relationship. And so we just kind of wanted to start today's video talking about some of those early stages of Angela's recovery, or even before she um, ended up getting sober this time, and some of his early stages as an, uh, a new clinician coming out of school and working with someone like Angela. So we're just going to get this thing going um, and talk with Jason first. And just what was that experience like? Or what is the experience like to see a professional, a person in recovery with integrity who has helped a tremendous amount of people not only get well, get clean, but be a connector in the community, um, seeing where you saw her initially and then getting to see her now? What is, what is that like for you? And great question, Chris. I think, you know, we were talking before uh, the show started, as we do, and um, I was really reflecting on uh, the day Angela tracked me down, which was what, five years? Five years ago, probably, four and a half or five years ago. Um, and I had known her, like you said, from even many years before that, when I had less gray hair uh, in I had more hair. I apparently dressed terribly, but um, <laughs> <laughs> but I do think uh, that day um, it was I, was. I remember I was downstairs at our center um, in our women's program at the time, and um, Angela tracked me down, and I hadn't talked to you. I don't know how long. What like ten years, maybe ten years, probably. Um, but you'd really made a huge impression on me, and so when you looked me up, um, I was eager to see you. And, um, and honestly, it's one of the most rewarding things of being a counselor at times is when people kind of track me down, down the road and are like, uh, I'm doing well on my journey, even if, you know, even if it didn't have its stumbles along the way. Um, but I just remember you walked in and um, you had this beautiful little girl that could barely walk. And, um, and I, I obviously knew right away you were doing well because of your presence and, and who you were. Um, and I remember even on that day, Angela, like I was hoping that one day you would work with us. And were you working at a different program at the time? I can't remember. I wasn't quite yet, but soon after you and I met, then I started working in treatment at a different program. Yeah. At an entry-level technician job. But I think through my experience with you, um, but also feeling um, that you cared for me yeah. back then and you never pushed me away or said you're doing this wrong. You just met me where I was. And I think that that, along with other people in my recovery journey, made the most impact that, oh, I know how to care for people. And I think that that's kind of what sparked my interest in wanting to work in treatment, that yeah. um, if there's anything I knew how to do, it was care about somebody. Yeah, and how, like, I mean, share how we met. Like, okay. do you want to talk about that? <laughs> So we met when I was, I believe I was 17 years old, 17 or 16. Yeah. And um, at the time, it was very early on in my um, addiction. So 
I'd only been using for maybe a year or two at the time. Um, I also struggled with eating disorders. Um, I had terrible relationships with men. Um, so I was just kind of all over the map. I wouldn't listen to my parents. Um, my mom lived out here in Colorado. My dad lived in Vegas. And so I definitely used that dynamic to my advantage to get what I wanted, and um, which really put me in a position of not being able to accept help because there was a way out. So my mom contacted you, and I started seeing uh, Jason individually. Who do I talk to? You? You okay. talk to me. Yeah. <laughs> um, I started seeing you individually. Yeah. Um, and I think at the time I was nowhere near ready even admitting that I had any kind of problem. Um, I was in a relationship that was unhealthy at the time. Uh, him and I were using together. And so again, I had a way out from looking at my problems. So you tried your best. Um, and you're- I did, I gave it a, a, <laughs> the old college shot. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and I had wonderful family support. Yeah. And I just wasn't willing to look at my own problems. So, you know, your recommendation time after time was you need to go in, inpatient. Yeah. And I was just not having it. I think I even remember you bringing my parents into our session and sitting us all down and saying, this is what's happening. And as soon as I saw everybody, I was out. I left the office. I was like, nope, not doing this. Yeah. So, um, I left and um, yeah, that's, that's how we first met. And then yeah. I think from there, we lost contact, I went back to Vegas, yeah. and that's really where, um, you know, I really dove deep into my addiction from there. That makes sense. Yeah. And, and I love that too, because we're talking trauma-informed before it was cool right there. And, and that's, <laughs> yeah. that's what I saw there, is, and I think, you know, there was a tremendous amount of intensity in the field 10 years ago to say, let's lock her away and throw away the key, and let's yeah. tell her the decision she's making is wrong, and let's draw a hard line in the sand, and let's make sure, she loses everything and just to get her into treatment. But what you did and what she spoke to was you just let her know that she has a seat here no matter what. Mm -hmm. And whenever you're ready, I'm going to be here. And I just, I tend to believe it's through a lot of interactions like that that recoveries are built yeah. and it becomes safe. So I just wanted to say that it's just, it was trauma informed before it was cool. Yeah. You know? And I think that that was impactful to me because at the time, I didn't really have anything. Um, I didn't really care about anything in my life that I was scared of losing. So I was comfortable having nothing. And I think that mm. the part that was hard for me was letting somebody care for me yeah. because had I let that happen, there's endless amount of people that would have. I, I just couldn't see that in myself that I was deserving of that yet. Um, so I think that that maybe um, is why I remembered you even years and years later was that feeling that like, oh, he cared for me when I didn't even give a shit about myself. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And planning that I don't get a little teary if you keep <laughs> talking like that. <laughs> it's true. It's really powerful. Um, and it is, it is weird to me because like I, I do remember it like it was last week, mm -hmm. like when you were over there and, and, uh, and then We'll talk about kind of then how did you how did you get sober? You don't have to. I know we've talked. You probably talked about that in here a little bit before. But like, how did you get sober? And then I, I do want to ask some other questions about now then too. Sure. So what happened from there? I went back to Vegas and my life just took a dive. Yeah. I was in a relationship um, that was very unhealthy. So between you know the codependent dynamic that we had, 
<clears throat> I'm not sure what came first, really, my addiction to him or the addiction to drugs. Um, and so yeah. eventually I found heroin. And um, I had tried to get sober. I, you know, a couple years in, I was like, all right, I give. I, I have enough. Like, let's try this. And, um, you know, I attempted sobriety. It didn't stick. I attempted again. I went to treatment. It didn't stick. It, in the same time, I was dealing with an eating disorder. So, you know, if it wasn't one, it was the other. And at the time, I just felt like there's really no hope for me. So, mm -hmm. you know, I, I tried. Um, and then when I was 19 years old, my uh, ex-boyfriend, he, he passed away from, a, from an overdose. And I think that that's what made me um, realize that I wasn't invincible and um, also made me feel like I had nothing left to live for. So, you know, I started doing speedballs after that and I went to California for a while to try to get sober but ended up down on Skid Row because that's where I could find drugs. I mean, so, you know, I was using down there and a bunch of places in between, you know, to, I went to Memphis, Tennessee, I went to um, out here in Colorado to try to get sober to California and I just tried to get away from essentially myself. Um, and it wasn't sticking. So the last time I went to treatment, my story is that I went to treatment 10 times before I finally got sober and that's definitely not everybody's experience and I never hope for anybody to go through that but for me that's what it took and, I, and I'm grateful for that. Um, but number 10, I went to treatment and I, a week in, I was like, okay, I'm gonna use. And once it was in my mind, I was like, okay, this is what I'm doing. And so I left a week in and I used. And it was the worst 24 hours of my life. Hmm. Um, I didn't use any of the substances that I had convinced myself I was addicted to. Uh, you know, up until then I blamed it on the drugs I was using or, you know, if you tried heroin, then you would be addicted too. And in that 24 hours, I didn't use anything I was addicted to and I could not stop. So I was convinced at that time that, okay, this is me, that's the problem. You know, it's not the drug, it's not my family, it's not my parents, it's me. And um, I called the treatment center and I asked them if I could come back. And I think that that was the first moment um, that I ever trusted anything bigger than myself and I ever showed a bit of humility. And I asked to come back and they let me. And that made the biggest difference. All the other programs I had gotten kicked out of, or when I relapsed, they said, you weren't welcome back. And so when they welcomed me back, um, I went back, but not only did they let me come back, they were grateful that I was alive. And they were grateful that I was not giving up on myself. And from then, I just decided to take suggestions. And you know, everything didn't happen at once. I didn't become a healthy, normal, individual as soon as I stopped using drugs. I had trauma to work through. I had depression, anxiety. I had hmm. Wow, I had no idea that you were on Skid Row. So I go every, every well, the last two years. Um, and when I go and visit <clears throat> places, inner cities, urban areas, I like to run from where I'm at today, where I've been, yeah. and always to come back to where I want to be. Yeah. And it's a really spiritual thing. And so I'll do these runs through Skid Row. And, you know, I just, I miss all of that when I meet you, because mm -hmm. I meet the professional, mm -hmm. and I meet the person sitting in our lobby who is convicted to be the best mother on earth, mm -hmm. and will do anything for her child and her recovery, and, and that's how I came to know Angela. Mm -hmm. 
was this great, integrous woman in recovery, great mother, great values, big hearts. And so to hear a story like that, it, it kind of makes me sad because you're right, you are worth so much more than that. But oftentimes, our stories, our pain, our shame, whatever it is, lead us to a place where we're isolated and all alone and disconnected. But it is just so rewarding to see your recovery intention today in the way that you live your life, which is attractive to each and every person you have the opportunity to come into contact with. I mean, it is truly something that people want more in their lives today, is your resolve and your energy and your compassion and your love. So much so that, I didn't mention it on the front end, but Angela started out as what we call now a CCA, mm -hmm. Client Care Aid, and I think it was probably a house manager, house manager. Yeah. back yeah. then, and she was a graveyard overnight manager, and she took... Weekend? Weekend. Weekend. Yeah. And that's where just, I started. Just her best shift. Yeah. <laughs> the best shift ever. She took a $3 pay cut and came to Peaks Recovery. Um, tell me about that experience sure. of taking that pay cut. Why did you yeah, do why it? why did you do it? Yeah. yeah. So I was working at another program, and, you know, initially... What I've learned, I guess, in my recovery is that the most important thing to me is leading with my heart. And, you know, I just want to help people. I want to care about people. I know what it's like to be at the bottom. And what I remember from people that tried to help me is that, um, that care. So for me, I just wanted to be in any kind of avenue in, in the treatment you know, industry. So I started off as a technician with a corporate program. So I was making a little bit more but eventually I didn't feel any heart. I didn't feel useful. Um, I felt like I just handed out cigarettes and that was it. So I was like, okay, this is just not for me. And it was like, okay, this is $3 more, but at what cost? And the cost was at me not feeling useful and really feeling drained by helping people. And that's never my hope. So, you know, I knew of Peaks because of Jason and I, when I had come to see him. So I was like, you know what? I believe in that program. And um, I printed off my resume and I walked into the office and um, Rachel Tapp, she interviewed me in that moment. And, um, you know, the only shift they had available was overnight on the weekends. To me, that was small um, compared to the three dollars and the pay cut because it was something that was meaningful to me. So what my life looked like at the time, I was single mom already of my daughter who was one and a half. So there's no daycare on the weekends. So I would work 12 hours overnights, and then I would pick her up from Pueblo where my sister lived, drive back, try to take a nap while my one and a half year old is tearing up the house, and then drop her off and go back to work for 12 hours. And then Monday morning, then she would be able to go to school and I would be able to sleep. And so that, that's what my life looked like. And then, you know, from there, I think, um, what made the biggest difference for me professionally is just acting out of integrity mm. and putting my heart first even in what I do um, as a job. So I think from there I was able to work my way up through the company. Yeah, it's a really beautiful thing. And then I think, we, did we actually lose you back to the... Almost. Almost. To the, and then we're like, no, no, well, just, let's just pay her that three bucks. Yeah. <laughs> She's yeah. worth all of it. And, yeah. and now Angela is an admission specialist. Mm -hmm. She brings people in on the front end of treatment. And it, if my sons, God forbid, would ever have to go to treatment, I can't think of somebody that I would want them to get on the phone with other than you. Because you're going to lead with that heart. 
you're going to make them feel safe. You're going to tell them that they're valuable even when they don't believe it. And that's the type of people that I want in and around my recovery circle, in and around our treatment program, and in our communities. And can you talk a little bit about what that admissions job has kind of changed for you professionally? What is it like to really have those families on the front end, a lot of times very vulnerable? Yeah. I mean, the work that you do is so precious and has to be so precise, and the family oftentimes is like clay. Yeah. And sometimes people do poorly with that clay. Yeah. And I think you do just a magnificent job um, filled with integrity. And so what, what has that been like for you transitioning from like client-centered to more family-centered? Yeah, so I think for me, what I remind the families that I am working with is that we all have the same goal. Nobody wants to live their life, you know, doing drugs and living in this burden of mental health. And so nobody wants to be there. And there's no right way to get to recovery. I think that a lot of the tension between families comes because one person thinks there's a right way. Mm -hmm. And typically the client is like, no, that's not the right way to support me, yeah. which is, there's probably truth in that mm -hmm. somewhere. So I think that that's the biggest thing I remember is that, okay, we all have the same goal here and how do we get there? And then also making them, um, you know, feel like they're not alone in this. Um, I think even if I don't tell them specifically, I want them to feel that, mm -hmm. that you know, there's, they've been hurting, their loved one has been hurting, and um, there's a solution for that. And so I think that that's just always my hope is every time I take the call is that, okay, make them feel like they are not alone. Mm -hmm. And I think that that makes the world of difference um, is for somebody to feel like they have somebody to support them. Yeah. And then that you can relate to. Mm -hmm. And I love the way that you can relate with families and people. And even if it's not necessarily your story, you do a really cool job of allowing them to see their story in yours. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really cool, unique, professional and personal trait that you have is really highlighting a story that might be a bit different, mm -hmm. but enabling that story or enabling them to see their story in that. So that relatability and that safety right away. I just think you do such a phenomenal job with that. Because even when you were telling your story, I never was on Skid Row, but damn, I felt like I connected with that, mm -hmm. you know, really, really well. And so I just really appreciate um, you coming on here today and really just talking about some of those things that are near and dear to your heart in your recovery process that is so intimate to you and your family. And I've just really got a tremendous amount of gratitude for who you are, what you're about, and what you do on a daily basis. And I couldn't celebrate you more, both personally, professionally. Um, and you're an amazing mother, an amazing professional, an amazing person, and that bright light just exudes off of you. So thank you so much yeah. for coming in today. Jason, as always, Chief Clinical Officer, Admission Specialist, Cheerleader. <laughs> it's, been, it's been awesome opportunity having you all on today. Um, I appreciate you coming on and spending some time with us. Sorry about the technical difficulties. That's what people with big hearts do. They don't pay attention to wires. Yeah. And sometimes <laughs> it goes a loop. Yep. Thank you so much. Please find us on Spotify, Facebook, Instagram, wherever you get your podcasts. We love you. Big hearts, big smiles, peaks recovery. Let's go. <laughs>